Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is John Salzerni. John is a manager and producer at Bellevue Productions, where he oversees the feature film production slate. There's a multitude of clients who have written for film TV. His producing credits include Always Watching and Eli as well as Parallel, which comes out in December, and Infinite, which is coming out in 2021. John, how's it going? We're very excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's going well. Windy day here in Los Angeles, but other than that, all is good. You beat me to my first question, which is always, where are you in the world right now? You mentioned LA. How important is it as a manager and or producer to be in LA, in Hollywood, Yeah, I mean, look, in a non-pandemic situation, I would say I don't know anyone who doesn't live in LA. I mean, I guess maybe you could live in New York. I don't really know anyone who does, but sure. But yeah, no, I would say, you know, it's always LA. I mean, look, right now, because of the pandemic and everything's virtual, you can't do in-person meetings or lunches or anything like that. You know, I know a lot of people who have moved, you know, back home or they're living in Canada or wherever, you know. If you ask that question, normally I'd be like, well, I'm in LA, of course. But, you know, in the last, you know, since March and probably for the next six months at least, you know, it's a very good question because, you know, when I talk to people, I always ask them the where they are because it's not necessarily given that they're in Los Angeles. But in normal circumstances, I would say, yeah, being in LA is pretty much a necessity. I mean, if you're focused on the domestic American business, if you're an English manager, then you want to be in London, I assume. Do you know what I'm saying? But yeah, for America, you know, LA. You mentioned pandemic and quarantine. Can you walk us through how the industry's changed? Obviously, you know, production had halted at one point. Have things picked up? Where are things at right now? And what do you expect? The first and most obvious thing is that, you know, movies aren't really coming out in movie theaters on, you know, a big level, not blockbusters. You know, there have been a few small thrillers and movies here and there. You know, there's obviously Tenon, which, you know, domestically made like 35 million or 50 million or something, which is probably about a tenth of what they were hoping it would make domestically, you know? So and they just moved Free Guy and Wonder Woman off the December release slate. And so we're just, we're taping this in early November, just so people know, because things seem to change pretty frequently. But I mean, the first thing I would say is that movies are not being released. And so, you know, yeah, they're going to VOD, but here's a way to think about that. Normally, let's say a movie comes out theatrically, does for a round number, let's say it does $100 million. One thing that people don't quite realize is that that $100 million doesn't go to the studio. Depending on how it broke down week by week, let's say 50% went to the studios domestically, okay, in the US. Internationally, there's different percentages for different territories, but domestically, 50%. So the studio makes $50 million for the movie, okay? And then there's the ancillary markets. Ancillary markets are things like airlines, like when you see a movie on an airline, the airline paid for that probably as part of a package of studio movies. Then you sell it to TV. So you get like X amount of money for TV. And the TV price is generally determined by what the theatrical price is. So if a movie made $100 million, 
domestically, maybe the TV price is like 10% of that, maybe 10 million. I don't know, maybe less. I don't really know what the TV prices are, but I do know that that gives you a kind of a, a bellwether or a mark to kind of figure out what the TV price is. Something made $50 million domestically, it's going to go for less money than a movie that made $100 million domestically. So there's the TV sales. And then, you know, there is obviously then eventually it goes to VOD. And then on VOD, you know, you make, I think, a higher percentage, but that's kind of that, you know, and then obviously DVD and Blu-ray, which is a declining market, but still a marketplace. But when you take something straight to VOD, that's all the money you're making. I guess you still probably do sell it to TV or you sell it to like airlines, but it's, you know, the money's not going to be quite as great because it's hard to like have a barometer of whether it's a success or not, you know? And so, you know, it just is one of the things where the simple answer is studios are not making money. That's why you've um, seen a rash of people selling things to Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, because they're out all this money and they're looking for a way to recoup it. There was a conversation about James Bond was and they were in potential discussions to sell it to streamers, but the price they were looking for, and I don't remember the numbers, but this was in like deadline. So it's definitely on the level where like they were looking for you know, $500 million or something like that. And the streamers were like, we won't pay anything more than 350. But like 350 alone is how much the movies cost. So they wouldn't make back their money, you know? So you're just looking at, you know, the reality is theatrical is still the biggest driver of income for movie studios, you know? So that is, that is huge. So I would say that's a big thing. Is that changing how people look at making future films, knowing that, okay, if we make this film, it might end up, you know, going to a streamer. So we have to make this film at a much lower budget. Is that how people are maybe starting to think? No, are they thinking? Because people know where they're going to, who's going to end up at before they make it, you know? No one's like, oh, well, I don't know where this is going to end up. I mean, like, you know that if you're making an independent movie, then you're like, yeah, that might be the case. But like, you know, when you're making an independent movie, it's going to be probably less than $10 million anyway. So it's not like you're like, that's going to change your budget number necessarily, you know? But if it's a studio, they generally have, hopefully, have a good idea. I mean, unless the movie is complete disaster, they know it's not going straight to streaming necessarily. So, you know, if you're making, I don't know, Fast and Furious movie, you're not going to put that on Peacock, you know? That's not going to happen that way. So what I would simply say is it's affecting the buying of screenplays and it's affecting what movies get put into production. The reality is, shifting to your production question, you know, to make sure that you're doing COVID protocols properly and to account for an extended schedule due to COVID protocols, because it just takes longer to get things done now. And you have to be very careful about things. And you could also like, there's been a lot of movies, like they just announced that this movie, Don't Worry Darling, that Florence Pugh is starring and that Olivia Wilde's directing. They just shut down for two weeks because of a COVID thing, you know, someone getting tested positive for COVID. So that's a two week shutdown, right? And you're probably paying, you have to move all the locations and you have to continue pay people's salaries. So that's two more weeks of a schedule than you were expecting, you know? So they're kind of budgeting 10% or more of the budget into that. And so a movie that might've made sense at $10 million doesn't necessarily make sense at $12 million or whatever. And, you know, you've seen a lot of TV shows getting canceled as a result of that. The Low got canceled as a result of that. A lot of other shows, they just looked at and said, well, if you add 10 to 20%, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it doesn't make fiscal sense anymore. Plus how much longer it takes to shoot it. So it really, I mean, look, the good answer is movies and TV shows are shooting again. The bad answer is the only things that are getting made are really big, big movies, really, really they're huge movies 
you know, big TV shows that people feel like are definite successes or really, really small, small movies where who knows how necessarily they're being careful about the COVID protocols, you know, they're kind of under the radar, shall we say. So that's what I've witnessed, you know, necessarily. I mean, look, there are kind of some smaller, I had a client had two different movies getting made overseas at the same time, which was crazy. And they shot it, you know, I mean, I think this is public and shot it in Bulgaria, the two movies. And so that was kind of crazy. And I guess they weren't very touched by COVID. I know they're shooting the new Lord of the Rings show in New Zealand and New Zealand has, you know, they've been successful at fighting COVID or kind of keeping COVID at bay as it were. So, but yeah, it's a world where there's just less money and people are getting laid off. Lionsgate just laid off 15% of their employees, I believe, you know, so it's a crazy time. You mentioned the focus on larger films and shows. What does that mean for writers who are, you know, just coming up, newer writers, more green writers? I imagine for those shows, they're probably looking at writers who are more established. It's mostly bad. I mean, because here's the answer. Anything that's getting made right now is stuff that was supposed to get made in March, you know? So there's a backlog. You have to imagine it's like an airport and all these planes are already backed up to get off the launch pad. And so it just makes it that much harder for people to take a chance on a new rewriter because there's just fewer writing jobs going around there. So as a result, the people who are the bigger names are willing to work for less money or willing to do things they maybe normally wouldn't do, so on and so forth. So there's just less opportunities out there. I mean, look, things still happen. I'm not trying to be like, it's all over. And eventually, you know, hopefully with a vaccine and Within a year, year and a half, we will be back to a version of normal. So, you know, this is not, um, it's not like suddenly, you know, we move from, you know, silent movies to talkies or something. And if you can't, don't have a good voice, you're out of a job, you know, but it is one of those things where I think the next year or longer is going to be a really, really difficult time for this industry for all of us. And especially for people trying to break in, it's just, and I don't think that should mean people should stop trying. And by the way, one thing I'm going to answer is like, because I feel like this would be a follow-up question, you shouldn't go write a big movie necessarily just because that's what they're making. Because the reality is they already know the big movies they want to make. You know, there are things like Uncharted that have been in development for 10 years that are based on huge IPs. That doesn't mean that if you want to write the script, you should write it. But I wouldn't necessarily change tact because by the time you're done with the script and it's good, this could all be over and people be like, actually, now we're looking back to smaller movies or whatever, you know? And so... I really believe that, you know, you have to, you can be savvy with the marketplace, but you have to write the best screenplay for yourself out there. But to answer your original question, I think it's a very difficult time for up and coming writers, you know? And what if up and coming writers have an idea, like you mentioned, like a script for something that's a bigger idea, bigger IP. How do they, you know, action on that? Prefer you mean like the, it's an original idea, right? Not like the original, like, yeah, uncharted like fan fiction or something, right? Exactly, something that I mean, maybe look, has it's like a, the yeah. same. It's the same as it ever was. It's the same as it would have been in February 2020. You know, like then get it out there and try to do something with it. You know, I don't think that has changed. What I would say is, you want to be smart about when you're taking it out. You know, you want to be like, oh, is this is a really big, cool idea. When is the right time to do it? Because you know, no matter if it's a big movie or not, there's a lot of like Disney right now, I don't think is necessarily in the place of buying screenplays that much because A, they don't do that much anyways. But like a lot of their money comes from their theme parks and those are shut down indefinitely. You know, a lot of people are focused on the existing development they already have, you know. So I think it'd be a conversation with your reps about when is the best time to take out this thing that we're very excited about that we believe is good, you know. What I would, and I hope I'm being clear on this one, people sometimes are like, oh, great, there's a hot market for big movies. No, it's more like there's a normal market that's 100%. 
And now it's down to like 40%. You know what I'm saying? And they're only looking for this kind of thing. So I wouldn't describe that as a hot market because they were looking for that kind of thing back in February. It's just now like it's really diminished. Now it's a much smaller pond. So I think it would still be about being smart and being like, when is the right, should we sit on this for six months? And, or maybe not, I don't know. It depends. You know, one of the things we're trying to do with some of the stuff I'm involved with is we're trying to package it. We're trying to get an actor or a director on board so that when it walks out, it's not just a screenplay, it's an actor and it's a director on board. We're using this time to try to package the material, which is something you can really only do if you have, you know, like I'm working on a project with Atlas Entertainment, which is Chuck Robin's company. And they, you know, produced a lot of the big DC movies like Wonder Woman and The Dark Knight and things like Triple Frontier, Suicide Squad. So they have very deep actor and director relationships. So we're working together with them because they're producing alongside me this project to try and get a great director or great actor on board. So that's what I think you could use the time. So when it does go to the marketplace, it's not just a screenplay. It's got a director on it, maybe an actor on it, you know, so it has a better shot at getting sold in a difficult marketplace. We're talking about the climate right now. Before we get into your process and what it means to be a manager and producer, I would love to talk about your origin story and find out you know, did you always want to be a manager? And what was your career trajectory that kind of led you to this point right now? Yeah, I'm originally from Vancouver in Canada. I went to NYU for film school, moved out here, worked in development, feature development for a while, worked at Appian Way, Leonardo DiCaprio's company as an assistant. And then I shift, I wanted to be a writer. I won some scholarships when I was in college, I think called the Sloan Foundation Fellowship for science screenplays. So I was like, I'm going to be a writer. And so I went and worked for a guy called Andrew Marlowe, and as well as his wife, Terry Miller, both of whom are writers. Andrew had written Air Force One and Holloman, End of Days. I worked for him and Terry for a couple of years. Andrew went and created the TV show Castle. So I worked on Castle as the writer's assistant for three seasons, the first three seasons. I learned a lot from that show. At the time, I kind of pivoted a friend of mine, Bobby, had suggested that like maybe I would be good. I was really good at coming up with ideas. Maybe I could be a producer. And so I pivoted and started producing and really discovered I really, really enjoyed that more than being a writer. And then I left in 2010 to go open Bellevue and start focusing on just on producing at that point. And I got a bunch of scripts sold to studios. I got them set up on the blacklist. And I was a few years into it and I gotten one movie made, but it was very, very hard to get movies made. And if you're a producer, the only time you make money is when your movies are literally in production, which, you know, a hard road to get there. And Ian Shore, who I'd worked with a lot, we'd sold a few screenplays, Christo and Capsule together. We'd gotten this movie Always Watching made. He was like, I think you should be a manager and I think you should be my manager. And he kind of convinced me that I could do that. You know, people had talked to me about it before, but I was a little nervous about it. But Ian was my closest collaborator and I was like, well, okay. And so in 2015, I pivoted the company towards management. Ian signed with me. I signed some more people, uh, David Churchurillo who had at that point written a movie called Cheap Thrills and was working on a script called Eli. I was already working with him as a producer, so he knew me well. And so he pivoted, he decided he wanted me to be his manager. So we pivoted to a manager-client relationship. I sent a bunch of other people. And then a colleague called Jeff Portnoy joined the company. And then that we had a kind of good first year in the blacklist. We had four scripts in the blacklist, which is nice for like a two-person kind of company. That's that's the annual blacklist, you know, the one where they rank every all the scripts. I just say that because sometimes people get confused between that and the Blacklist website. Yeah, and then the next year, 2016, we had the number one script in the Blacklist, Blonde Ambition, which was the story of the early days of Madonna, which 
uh, client Elise Hollander wrote, who also it happens to be is also my wife now. So we, although we were, you know, we were dating before she was a writer, we were dating, you know, she was a, my girlfriend at the time and then, you know, moved into writing and then eventually became a client. Yeah. And then we've since added two more managers to the company, Zach Zucker and Cade Sharp. We've had a bunch more scripts in the blacklist. We've had a bunch of clients have their movies made. Eli ended up getting made and came out on Netflix a year ago. It seems like a world ago. Infinite is in post-production right now. I'm going to come out 2021. Parallel comes out in December. Yeah. So, you know, it's been, we've had a fair amount of success. We have a lot of clients staffed in TV now. So yeah, you know, I've been doing this since about 2015 as a manager. And I really enjoy when I feel like being a manager is the right thing. That's where I was meant to be. But it took working in feature development and then working for a writer, then working on a TV show. And then, you know, being a producer, independent producer. And of course, even earlier than that, wanting to be a screenwriter myself. So I've kind of done almost every aspect, a lot of the different aspects myself on the feature development side. And so I kind of have a nice breadth of knowledge, but I feel like this being a manager allows me to draw from all those different sources. And I really, really enjoy it. For those who are listening, who maybe don't know, you know, starting from a very high level, could you walk us through the difference between what a literary manager is versus a talent manager versus an agent? kind of where what you do falls. So the first easy one is literary manager manages directors and writers. A talent manager represents actors. Lit encompasses directors and writers and talent encompasses actors. So that's the first difference. The next question is the difference between a manager and agent. Agents are licensed by the state. Managers are not. Therefore, managers can produce. Agents cannot. So that's just the kind of, that's a very upfront kind of legal definition. You know, I would think of managers more as the Jerry Maguire's, even though he's a sports agent, but, you know, tend towards much smaller client base, much more intimate relationship. Your average agent might have like 80 clients. Your average manager might have 30 or 40. You know what I'm saying? Managers, by and large, tend to find clients before agents do. So I would say, you know, the normal process is, I discover a client, you know, via query letter, via find them on the blacklist website, via competition, via relationship, however I f- out of college, however I find them, I work with them and then I bring their material to an agent and then the agent signs them. Agents do sign people other ways, but I would be interested to know from an agent what percentage of their clients nowadays come from managers. I would guess it's a pretty high percentage. Managers essentially act as like almost a filtration system or like a it's like the yeah. minor leagues, like a feeder system for agencies to some degree. That's certainly how, probably how they view it. I view working with an agent to be, I find a client when they are raw talent and I, I kind of polish them up and work with them until we have like a presentable, saleable product, by which I mean a screenplay, but also to some degree them and, and then figure out how to work within the industry and who they want to be and how they want their career to go. And then we bring them to an agent. And an agent is... I would say the majority of, especially on the feature side, is they're essentially salespeople. They sell screenplays and they find opportunities for their clients to work. They find, you know, open writing assignments, OWAs, for their clients to write. That's the majority of what an agent does. There are some agents who are more involved in like developing the screenplay, but by and large, I found that to be the exception. Also, to some degree, because I am such a development-oriented manager, that is not, you know, what they choose. Use their job in TV. You know, there's a little bit more of that sometimes, but really agents are more the people who are out there selling the client and the manager is the person developing the client and helping. They're helping 
If the agent's out there selling the car, the manager is helping the client build the car. That makes any sense. Love that. You mentioned how you find your clients. You mentioned query letters, blacklists, competitions, relationships. Can we get more granular? Are there examples that you have? I've been pretty vocal on Twitter this year. Bizarrely, has been a phenomenal year for finding clients for your query letters. I found four different clients via query letters. And before that, before 2020, I think I could talk about one or two clients I'd found via query letters. That was it. And I don't know what, I don't know, maybe because I have a higher profile on Twitter now, I'm getting more or better query letters. I don't know what has changed. So a query letter is pretty simple. Someone sends me a query. And look, I get a lot of those a day. I probably get 30 to 40 query letters and query emails a day. And, you know, once in a while, I see one that I like. And then I email them back and I say, hey, I like this query letter. I'd like for you to sign a release form, which is a legal waiver that means that, like, basically, if I read it, if I read it and I don't like the screenplay, but 10 years later, they wrote a screenplay about a ski instructor. And 10 years later, I work on a screenplay that has a ski instructor in it. They can't sue me. Do you know what I'm saying? I would say one time that I have 100 people are like, don't want to sign that release form. And that's fine. But, you know, then I don't read the script. But, you know, that's a pretty standard operating form for any production company I've ever worked with. That's pretty much what they do as well to protect themselves because there's a lot of frivolous lawsuits in Hollywood, unfortunately. So, you know, there's that. And then if I read it, if I like it, then I meet with a person and we go from there. The Blacklist website, every week I get an email from the Blacklist website that says recommended screenplays, TV and feature. And then I re- I look through it. And if any of the log lines jump out to me, that I can click on the title of the screenplay, and then I can go and read the screenplay, or I can go and read the pilot and see if I like it. And then if I like it, then I can reach out to the person and say, hey, I read your screenplay, I read your pilot, I really liked it, and then start talking to them. And that I've had a lot of success from that. I have a client who I found through, I read her pilot called Worth, was really awesome. Her name is Studio Malhotra. I read about her pilot in this cool log line. I clicked on it, I read it, it was phenomenal. I reached out to her you know, got to know her. She is amazing. We started working together and we ended up getting her an agent. And then that agent got her staff like six months after I first spoke to her, I, I think maybe even sooner. So that was an amazing success story that happened relatively quickly. And she is doing great now doing a lot of amazing things. So yeah, that's a specific story, I guess. A lot of times I've signed clients, you know, one of my clients will be like, Hey, my friend or my friend's friend wrote a screenplay. I think you should check it out. Then I read it. And if I like it, then I reach out to them competitions. Sometimes I'll be a judge for a competition and I'll read a screenplay. So Chris Thomas Devlin, who went on to write Cobweb, which we sold to Lionsgate and which is in production right now in Bulgaria. He was someone I read as an Austin Film Festival judge. And I loved his script, The Rich and Emily Derringer. I signed him off of me and my colleague Jeff Borden. I signed him off of that. He didn't, by the way, didn't even win the category. He only came in second place in the category. That screenplay got him signed over at UTA, and then it was on the blacklist that year, and that led to more opportunities, and eventually he wrote the spec screenplay Cobweb, and off of Cobweb, he wrote the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot, that also filmed this year. So that's an example of like how through a competition, but even if I'm not a judge for a competition, if it's a prominent competition, like I would say I pay attention to the Page Awards, to the Nichols, to the Austin Film Festival, Final Draft. So I'll pay attention. There's some other ones. So I'll pay attention to that. And then, you know, what has happened actually a little bit more recently is, you know, people will reach out to me that I trust who are not clients, but, you know, like script pipeline or something will be like, hey, here's a writer you should be aware of. 
and yeah, so that'll be something interesting. I don't know if I've signed anyone from Script Pipeline. I think I've come close or tried to sign people. I think my colleagues have signed people through them. I don't remember off the top of my head, but they're really excellent. Coverfly has been really excellent. They put out these emails that have like, you know, writers to, to be aware of. And I've talked to some people through that. And then my colleagues have signed people through that. So Coverfly has been excellent. So those are the ones. Coverfly and Script Pipeline. Coverfly like this year has become great. I really experienced it. And Script Pipeline, I've known Matt for a while. His taste is phenomenal. So I really trust it when he recommends something to me. And there's other people I talk to as well. You know, other people kind of who do that similar stuff who will reach out to me like, oh, here's someone you should be aware of, you know? And I always take whatever they have to say quite seriously. Yeah. And then sometimes executives will reach out to me and be like, oh, you should read this person. This is a friend of mine. They're talented or a writer I'm working with. So those are the ways that things tend to come in. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Of that list, I know the writers listening are definitely interested in the query letter for sure. Are there suggestions you have for whether it's the formatting itself or whether it's just really selling that idea? I have seeing one you like. I have detailed suggestions and if you go to my Twitter page, I've retweeted it today, like or no, yesterday, November 7th. But also, if you go to my Twitter page, I have a pinned tweet, which means the tweet at the top, and it leads to a page that has a PDF of all my best Twitter threads. And in that PDF, which is a free PDF, there is a thread on exactly what to do in a query letter and how to treat it. So I could go into detail here, and I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit about it. But I would say if you read that thread, it will be far more detailed it's printed out for you. So that's what I, my number one recommendation. The other thing I would say is, you know, for me, it's all about the log line. I would say, keep it simple, be specific, you know, dear John, not to whom it may concern or whatever, go to that. And then, but for me, it's really about the log. Don't only one log line. Don't put more than one log line, stick to one log line, you know, have a good log line. Obviously that it conveys, you know, a lot of people send me scripts and they're like, here's my log line. It's about a bunch of people who pull off a bank robbery and then are on the run from the cops. And I'm like, okay, well, that that doesn't sound particularly special, you know? 
this is the number one rule. Don't attach a file. Don't attach your screenplay. Don't attach a lookbook. Don't do anything. You know, if you or anyone who's listening got an email from someone they didn't know with an attachment, would you open it? No, you wouldn't because it could be a virus. You know, who the hell knows? So if I haven't requested anything from someone, if they send me an email with an attachment, I automatically delete it. So I just don't know, you know? And so just be respectful, you know, in that sense. But yeah, I have a thread that's much more detailed and can give it, because that's probably the number one thing I get asked about. So, you know, I just put a thread that kind of like gives all the information and I can just refer back to it. But the simple, the headline notes are one log line, no attachments, and, you know, make sure that log line is really amazing. Obviously, we just talked about finding clients, but what about when you sign a client? What are those first steps? You mentioned kind of going through their goals for their career. What does that conversation look like? And then how does it transition to kind of actioning on, you know, getting them there? Yeah. I mean, you know, what I like to do when I'm talking to a client or potential client, I should say, is so the first thing I would say is that the majority of times that I read a screenplay, I would say the majority of times I don't actually want to take that screenplay out and get that sold. Because most of the time, the screenplay demonstrates great writing, but it doesn't necessarily demonstrate that, oh, this concept is so saleable. You know, it might be a good writing sample, but more often than not, it's not the kind of thing that people are looking for, but the writing is really strong. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll meet with the writer and I'll say, hey, I'm always very honest. And I'm like, hey, I really like your script. I don't think it's something I can sell, but I'd like to start talking to you about new ideas and hear what your next ideas are. And if there's one that I really like, then I'd like to develop that with you, if that's of interest to you. You know, and some people, and I get it, they want to have someone who like takes out their screenplay and is just like, that's it. Let's take it out. Let's see what happens, you know? But for me, if I'm working with someone, I want it to be a long-term experience. And I want to bring out, if I take out a screenplay, you know, I'm thoughtful about what I do. So people know when I reach out to them that it's something that they should take seriously. So, you know, I don't take out every, a ton of screenplays. So a lot of times that's what I do. So then I'll talk about like, okay, well, let's work on new ideas. And if we have a new idea, here's what I would want to do with your career. I think that you're this kind of writer. I think this is where we would focus on. We would aim for the next script to be this. We would aim for the next sample to be that. We want to do this kind of thing. You know, I'm very, the first meeting, I'm very clear about what my vision for their career would be. And that way, you know, if that vision doesn't line with their vision, then I'm probably not the right person for them. And I try to be as upfront and honest as possible so that there's no the person's not like, hey, why aren't you taking my screenplay? Or why aren't we doing this? Or why aren't we doing that? I've kind of explained it from the start, you know? That I think is the most important thing in a relationship with a writer is clarity of, of what the process is and what the expectations are, you know? I think the times that I have bad relations, not relationships, but I have bad situations where a client decides to change the game plan at the last minute or makes assumptions or is like, well, aren't we going to do this? And you know, it puts me in a very awkward position of having to be like, well, no, and here's why. Because, you know, everything I do, it's usually, you know, if we're going to take out a screenplay, you know, I have to think like six months from now, what is that marketplace going to look like? There's a script that I'm at with right now. We finished it in March and April. But I think it's a screenplay that really benefited by being taken out close to the election, that benefited by being right, right near when the kind of blacklist voting is, which is in November. You know, it's kind of like if you had an Academy Awards movie, you wouldn't take it out in like April. You take it out in, you know, October, November, December, close to Academy Awards voting. That's when you see all the quote unquote Oscar contenders come out around then, you know? And so the writer really understood that. And we sat on the script and, you know, and eventually, you know, we took it out and we got him signed by William Morris. And there's been a lot of attention on it. And we're hopeful it'll end up on the blacklist this year. And, 
you know, I think it worked out well, but he was willing to kind of be patient and understand the plan, you know? So yeah, that's the conversation is very much about like, what is the process? What does your career look like? And, or rather, here's what my vision for it is. And, you know, that way, if that was not what the vision they have, then they, they should go talk to other people, you know? You mentioned oftentimes the script that, you know, you're first looking at becomes just a writing sample that you use as a filter almost to find out whether the writer is talented. But then also you then begin working with them on a new idea. So can you walk us through what developing that idea looks like? I imagine there's a lot of back and forth where you're kind of creatively guiding them. But how many passes does that look like? How long does that process take? Yeah, I mean, look, for a lot of times, what I'm trying to do is like, is this someone who has commercial ideas? So I haven't signed them. It's kind of predicated upon is us landing on a commercial idea, you know, that I feel is interesting. So a lot of times I'll start talking to people and they'll send me ideas and ideas and I'll be like, no, no, no. And I'll, I always explain why. Like recently someone sent me three ideas and I wrote them back, you know, a paragraph for each thing of like why they weren't right, you know? And look, the majority answer is like either A, it doesn't feel like a movie, it maybe feels like a TV show or a short film or a play or whatever. You know, it doesn't feel like, is there enough there to sustain a movie? And then secondly, a lot of times, probably the most often, is it feels generic. You know, it's like, there's this thing and then this thing happens. You're like, yeah, well, I feel like I've seen that a million times before, you know? And you have to really find a novel spin on it for it to exist in the marketplace. And, you know, a lot of times people want to, they view writing as writing dialogue, writing words, you know? But a lot of times what writing really is, what professional writers know, especially when they're thinking about original material is, is this something that can sell? Is this something that can get made? You know, you don't write for the sake of writing. I was asked someone like, if you're going to build a house, would you just start building a house, like the house that you wanted for yourself? If you were a commercial builder, no, you'd be like, what is the marketplace looking for? I'm not going to put a year of my time and like millions of dollars into something that's just designed only for me. We need to design for the marketplace. And I think that's where it gets a little tricky because I think a lot of letter writers are like, I'm an artist. I write for myself. That's more of a novelist kind of thinking. You know, the reality is screenplays, at a minimum, you're looking at spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get them made more normally millions of dollars. And so in that sense, it has to be something that can be this commercial investment that has to pay back the investment. So you have to think about how do I serve, how do I get people their money back? How do people feel like, oh, I'm going to put money into this movie and it'll come back because people will want to see it. And so that is kind of the, just to, to answer the first section of that, that is really what the relationship is, is does the person have commercial ideas? Is this person, you know, a good writer, but having commercial ideas is a whole other ballpark. So that's the first part of it. And then, you know, when we do land an idea that we are excited about, that we're both excited about, then what I'll do is I'll have them kind of expand it from like a paragraph and two to like maybe a page and a half or two pages just to get it up on its feet and be like, is there enough here? Because sometimes there's not. Sometimes you're like, I like this concept, but I don't really know that there's enough here, you know? But if there is, then we expand from two pages to like four to five pages. Then we start working on characters and who are the characters, who are the main characters, what's going on with him. Then we break the first act and we break, you know, what I call 2A, which is, you know, 30 to 60. And then, you know, 2B, which is 60 to 90. And then act three, which is 90 to 120. Obviously, those numbers are not exact. Sometimes you have a 100-page screenplay or whatever, but it's an easy kind of ballpark to talk about. You know, and then we focus on breaking it an act at a time, kind of building it like you're building a Lego tower or something. You start from the bottom and you kind of build it up, essentially. And, you know, when something changes in the second act, you can go back and change the first act as a result of it. But I really am very much into an extensive outlining thing. I'm very, very big on outlining. You know, I learned that when I was working as a writer assistant in television where everything is outlined to death. 
you know, and that is also something that studios do very normally. If you're working on a studio assignment, they're not going to be like, oh, shoot, just go write it. They're going to want to see an outline. You know, they're going to pay you for an outline, but they're going to want to see an outline, you know, or treatment as they'll call it. Yeah. And so then we do that. Then they start writing the screenplay and then they write the first 30 pages. They send it to me. I read it and I give them notes and then we move on to the next 30, next 30. And so once the first draft is done, it's more like a second draft, really. And then we do, you know, second and a third and a fourth draft or, you know, and then somewhere around like the third draft or so, maybe fourth draft, we do what I call the circle of trust, which is where I give it to, you know, eight to 10 to 12 of my clients. My clients read it. They give me feedback on it. I share that feedback to the writer. It's kind of like having an audience test screening, but for your screenplay. And they have like the smart thoughts and we see what's working. We see what's not. And then we address those notes. You know, if one person says something we don't agree with it, we can ignore it. But if five people say the ending doesn't make any sense, then we've got to fix that ending, you know? And then when we're feeling really good about it, then, you know, at that point, you know, if they don't have an agent, we maybe try and go get them an agent. If they do have an agent, then we show it to the agent and then we take it out to the marketplace. And then as far as the films you end up producing, how does that end up happening? How do you decide that you are going to be producing? What does that look like? Yeah, I have a pretty simple rule about that, which is, if it's an idea that's either my idea, so like the idea for, well, Eli was even before I was a manager. So, but the idea for Eli was, or like the idea for Blonde Ambition, those were ideas that I brought to the table. I'm like, oh, I heard this interesting story about Madonna. Or Eli was like, oh, this idea of like this kid who's an autoimmune disorder is trapped in a haunted house. So that's obviously I'm producing that. If it's something, so in the case of Infinite, that was a book that I optioned called The Reincarnationist Papers, along with a guy called Rafi Crone. And then I brought it to, Ian Shorter, right? So that was something that I had done, you know. Obviously, in that case, I was involved. Sometimes I'll be involved from a very early stage where we're like trying to figure out, you know, from a very amorphous, like, okay, we want to do, you know, a baseball movie. Okay, well, what if we did this kind of baseball movie? So, like, say something like Cobweb, which Chris definitely had that whole thing worked out. And like, I'm not producing that because, you know, that was something that was just, I definitely helped shape it through development, but I wasn't, you know, that was Chris's original idea, you know. So that's kind of the line for me in terms of stuff is like, where did I come into the process? And was I involved, you know, at an idea origination stage, you know? I mentioned earlier, attaching talent. How important is that these days to getting a project that you're producing made? Whether I'm producing or not producing, it's the same thing. In terms of like, you know, it's always better, but I would say it depends on the, like for a horror movie, a director would be nice, but it's not necessary. An actor makes really no difference because horror movies are made so cheaply that, you know, if somehow like a Tom Cruise wants to do your horror movie, then that's great. You know, but he's probably not because horror movies tend to be, you know, sub $20 million or whatever, you know, so there's not a lot of budget for big movie stars. If you look a lot of horror movies, like I think Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson are phenomenal actors, as is Lily Taylor, but I think very few people showed up to The Conjuring because they wanted to see Lily Taylor or Vera Farmiga or like Patrick Wilson necessarily. They showed up because it looked like a scary movie, you know? And those amazing actors helped sell it, you know? You know, horror movies tend to make stars. They are not necessarily dependent on stars. Now, look, if it's a $100 million action movie, then a movie star or a director is definitely going to be helpful. But, you know, we still have Infinite without a director or without an actor, you know? So... I have to say, I haven't really sold very many things with directors or actors involved, at least when, the, you know, some of my clients are writers and directors. So, and obviously in that case, there is a director involved, but it's because they wrote the script. You know, you talk a lot about packages. 
it's a rare thing that happens, but it does happen, you know, but if you can make it happen, then great. That just makes it, gives it a better shot at selling. It's not a guarantee, but it gives it a better shot, you know, but there's just a lot of factors that go into figuring that out. That's honestly a very much like a high level problem that you're dealing with, or you're trying to figure out. It's not something that just happens on a very low level. I would say like, you always want to ask yourself when you're attaching someone, are they an add value? Because if they're a neutral or even worse, a negative, then you don't want to do that. You know, if the person's like, oh, they're a director. Oh, cool. They've directed some movies. Does it matter? They attach themselves. Does that make a difference really in the marketplace? Unless there's someone that people are excited about, I don't know that's necessarily an add value because one place might like them, another place might not. You know, another place might have a director that they think is a better fit. You know, so for me, packaging, I haven't done a ton of it just because. I've had a lot of people approach me, oh, my director would love to be on this, but you know, it's a small horror movie and they might be one territory, one studio might like them, but nine other ones might not. So you're trying to like, it's really, you know, you're trying to like, it's a bit of a gamble. You're trying to like figure it out. What about the pitch? How do you choose where to pitch? I mean, imagine you had mentioned earlier that you get the script to the agent, the agent starts, you know, sending it out. How do you land the pitch? And then also when you are actually pitching or when the client is pitching, do you have any you know, words of wisdom for those writers who finally have that opportunity to pitch their script? So when you say pitch, because we were talking about it's like you're talking about a different scenario than there's already a written script, right? You're talking about a scenario where there is no written screenplay, correct? When there isn't, yeah, pitching a new idea. You know, it doesn't happen that often. I think pitching is like the great white whale of like screenwriter Twitter, where they think it happens all the time and it really doesn't happen very often. People, especially nowadays, are only interested in hearing pitches from established writers. For example, you wouldn't normally really pitch a horror movie unless there's a very established person with huge people associated with it because horror movies don't cost that much, you know? So why spend a million dollars on a screenplay when that's going to end up being 10% of the budget? So it depends on what the thing is. I have, so we sold this K-pop movie as a pitch because that was based on underlying IP, which was an article in the Village Voice. And we had Scooter Braun attached who obviously is a huge music producer. So that was helpful. And my wife, Elise Hollander, wrote it. And she was obviously had a good profile having written the Blonde Ambition script and having written Queens of the Stone Age for Sony at that point. So that was something we did sell on pitch. And there was a lot of interest in it. At that point, there really weren't any or very few K-pop projects. So it felt like very of the moment and felt new and interesting. But, you know, I haven't really have a lot of clients sell pitches, honestly. Because if you think about the amount of effort it takes to figure out a pitch, you're essentially going through all the stages of development up until the point where you've completed treatment. So, you know, all the stuff I talked about in terms of like figuring out if the movie has legs, breaking act one, breaking act two, you're going all the way to the treatment stage. And if you put probably another like, mm, I don't know, two, three months in it, you'd have a finished screenplay. And taking out a pitch takes about, I don't know, a month or so, maybe three weeks. It's very tiring. And then you're going and pitching a lot of people and then everyone's hearing it and they're like, well, I mean, we like it. We just don't know if it'll work out or whatever. And then like, if you had a finished screenplay, you could shop it and do all that stuff with it. So, you know, I mean, this is, we're talking strictly about features here. Features, it's like, you know, it's a really tricky balance. And I would say, you know, kind of people who can sell features are the kind of people who probably had a big studio feature gotten made before or are very, very hot for other reasons. They have written something that's going into production or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's not something, you know, there are exceptional circumstances, but it's rare for an up and coming writer to sell a pitch. 
I would say on the TV side, a lot more pitches sell than existing pilots, but it's very rare for a writer who isn't at producer level to sell a TV pitch because, you know, networks and studios prefer to work with someone who has a track record of working in television for years and years and years. It does happen, but, you know, it's not, you know, again, you kind of have to earn your way to that point. So it's something that happens when the writer is somewhat established, definitely is at least staffed on one or two shows, I would say, you know, that is the norm, I would say. And what's the end goal for you, John? What is your, uh, you know, obviously you've been developing and getting movies made. What is your end goal? I mean, I feel like I'm living it, honestly. I hope that doesn't come off as arrogant, but like I have a company, I work with really great people. I really love all my clients. You know, I produce movies that are exciting to me and interesting, you know? I would say that's the end goal is like, I get to find really, I really like finding up and coming writers and helping break their careers. That's always interesting to me. A lot of managers are only interested in people who've already got established careers. For me, I really like helping shape people early in their careers and keep, you know, building that career and so on and so forth. So that's always very exciting to me. The fact that I'm a little bit more established now where it's a little bit easier, where, you know, I know a lot of producers and when I have a new screenplay, they're going to read it. Kind of, They're going to trust my judgment or agents are going to trust my judgment. You know, people don't buy screenplays because like I rep the writer. That doesn't happen. I and mean, that doesn't happen for almost anybody. I mean, it never, if agents and managers could sell things just because they rep the person, that would be amazing, but it doesn't work that way. But people will read it and take it seriously. And so that's nice to have been at a place where people trust my judgment and I have a good reputation. But yeah, I would say I'm kind of living, you know, I want to continue to build my company in a, you know, I don't necessarily see the company becoming like a hundred person company, but I would like to keep building a company where I'm adding people to the company and they're as amazing as my current colleagues at the company and keep adding clients who are as amazing as my current clients. Yeah, that's it. You know, I don't have, I don't, I'm no interest in running a studio or having, you know, a massive thousand person company or anything like that. It's just not what's necessarily interesting to me. That creates a different demand on your time and demand on your, it's more of an organizational bureaucratic thing. And I just like to be, I like to work hand on hand with writers and with my colleagues. Love that. John, are you ready for a couple bonus questions we call a series of seemingly random questions? Sure. First one, if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why? I think the two writers that I admire the most, who I don't represent, I'm not married to, would be John Logan and William Goldman. And obviously, William Goldman unfortunately passed away. I mean, neither of them really feel like fast food restaurant people to me. I've met John Logan very much in passing when I was an assistant. He was a very, very kind and talented person. And Bill Goldman, I've seen enough people talking of him. I feel like Bill Goldman would probably like fast food restaurants more. I'd love to go to, this is actually a restaurant I don't think exists anymore, Hamburger Hamlet, which was this great burger joint. I think there's still one left in the Valley. When I worked at Appy in a way, we used to go there at least once a week. And the hostess was Miles Davis's ex-wife. I saw like Stan Lee there. It was right off of Sunset Boulevard near Doheny. I'd like to go with Bill Goldman to Hamburger Hamlet. That's my answer. Love that. My last question, I'm sure you get a lot, but if you had to choose one thing, one learning from your career, your entire career, what would you say to the writers who are listening? I would say be thoughtful about what you put your time into. You know, 
you're always learning. And that's great. You'll learn from all the stuff I tried to produce in my first few years. Nothing happened with it, but I think it informed my later career and I know what to do and what not to do. Spend the time thinking about what you're working on rather than just kind of dashing headlong into it. Spending time thinking about what you're writing or what you're doing is as important as the actual doing of it. You know, it's kind of like if you're building a house, I always go back to the house metaphor, I guess. It's like you wouldn't just like start putting a frame up and be like, I'll figure this out as I go along. You probably would do blueprints and then you'd like look at it and be like, okay, I want this to feel like this. I want that to feel like that. I think you have to treat your career and what you work on the same way. Passion is great and it'll get you through the hard times on a project because there always will be moments when you don't feel like writing it anymore. But I think spending time thinking about what you're doing and what you're writing is as important, if not more important than the actual time spent on the keyboard typing away. So that would be my thing is be thoughtful about what you put your time into. Love that. The last and most important question. Did you have fun today talking to us? I know it was a really quick, brief crash course for those listening into what you do, but we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you guys reaching out. And, you know, I always enjoy talking. You guys are obviously very intelligent. Hopefully, this information is really helpful to your audience. For me, I think one of the things I like doing on Twitter and on podcasts is kind of demystifying what I do and what we do in the business and just trying to approach it with thoughtfulness and with clarity. And hopefully that's helpful to everybody. John, can you plug your Twitter? I know you've mentioned it a couple of times for those listening so they can yeah. find you. The easy answer is it's just my name. So it's John <laughs> and then Zao Zerny, Z-A-O-Z-I-R-N-Y. So look in your podcast app and look at my name and then just go to Twitter. That's the easy thing. But I did not used to tweet that much. And then this thing called a pandemic occurred. It's <laughs> been a lot more. Because you have to understand that like a normal day for me would be, you know, wake up and then I go into the office and then I have like a 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. or whatever. And then around like 12.30, I drive to have a lunch. I have a lunch at 1 p.m. And then the lunch goes 1 to 2 to 2.30. Then I have a 3 o'clock. Then I have a 4.30. And then I, you know, maybe it's something else after that, answer emails and then I go home. And so there's a lot of driving. You know what I'm saying? A lot of driving. I'm driving like four times, six times a day, you know, especially if I have an afternoon meeting somewhere. And so now I don't do that because it don't go anywhere. So it's like suddenly I have all this time to like do it. And I guess I'm like, oh, shoot, I should like be on Twitter and respond. And sometimes it gets me into trouble. You know, I try to be <laughs> helpful and I try to be helpful to people. And I think that's the rule I've learned is, is, you know, I try to like approach things from a place of try not to get emotional. And I'm sure I've screwed up sometimes, but I try to be helpful to people and answer the questions that they put in front of me. And yeah, that's it. We appreciate you putting yourself out there in the writing community too, just because, you know, obviously you mentioned demystifying the management producing world, but it means a lot for someone like you to be out there and educating. So thank you so much for doing it. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. And thanks for listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.